Welcome to another episode of Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the biggest stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yochi Driesen, here with Jen Williams and Zach Beecham. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the fight against ISIS in northern Iraq. We're going to talk about mass protests against one of Donald Trump's favorite dictators around the world. And we will begin with the fight against ISIS in a very literal sense, right now happening in the Iraqi city of Mosul. So that sound you heard was Iraqi forces, Kurdish forces backed by U.S. air power who are circling at this point and deeply inside of and have basically finished conquering Mosul. One of the biggest cities in Iraq, a city I'd actually lived in for about six months that was at one point a really genuinely beautiful city and I think we can safely say now is not. So Mosul, which would have been where the caliphate was first declared, this was where the leader of ISIS stood in one of the most historically important mosques in all of Iraq proclaimed ISIS now was a thing. The caliphate was now a thing. Later on, they then destroyed that very historic mosque. So Mosul has fallen. You have a similar coalition who are approaching Raqqa, which is basically the capital of ISIS in Syria. That fighting has already begun. Raqqa will probably at some point fall, although it's always dangerous to get too far ahead. And and I think the kind of obvious question hanging over all of this is, if ISIS, which once held big amounts of territory in Iraq and Syria, doesn't anymore, is ISIS beaten? So- The question is, what do we mean when we say ISIS to start talking about this, right? For the past roughly three years, when we talk about ISIS, we mean the Islamic State, which is the first part of the acronym. And that means something that literally governs territory, that administers, you know, taxes, a criminal code, acts like a crazy government. And that, when Mosul and Raqqa and maybe one or two other cities in Syria fall, that will no longer exist. That will have been defeated in any meaningful sense. It is, after Mosul, they no longer control any major population centers in Iraq. Raqqa and, again, maybe one or two other places in Syria are their last holdouts there. The Islamic State, as we've understood it since 2014, will soon, I believe, no longer exist. And that is the one way of looking at ISIS, right? So then there's the other way, which is, I think, what you were kind of— heading toward, um, which is the ISIS idea, so the ISIS ideology. And that is the part that uh, I think is going to be much harder to defeat in the sense of when we talk about the actual terrorism threat, right? So ISIS, like you said, it controlled territory. It was a state. So in in many ways, you know, it could be seen as as like an insurgency, right? Um, Controlling population centers, um, trying to get the population on its side, although ISIS has an interesting way of doing that, um, which is to just mostly kill and <laughs> subject the population. It's sort of like the literal opposite of hearts and minds, unless, right. unless you mean take right. out a human heart. Right. It's destroying hearts and minds and infrastructure. But I mean, they did actually also provide services. You know, they got electricity running, water. They had um, passports and weird coins. Right. I mean, they had education. They used, you know, Saudi textbooks. They had schools. They rebuilt bridges and infrastructure and roads. Um, so they did do a lot of, of stuff. They also were incredibly repressive and had insane kind of radical vision of of Islamic law that they they instituted. So that's, yeah, so that's like the physical state. And that's, inshallah, going to be gone soon-ish. But what ideology it has been pushing and through its propaganda, the massive calls kind of around the world to call people to kind of stand up and fight. So when ISIS first rose to power, its propaganda really pushed this idea of coming to the Islamic state to help build this caliphate, right, to build this state As they've started to lose territory, they've shifted that propaganda because they don't necessarily have a place for you to come anymore, um, and they're losing territory. And so even, like, the foreign fighters they try to attract, right? So they wanted foreigners to come to the state to help build this thing, to help fight. Now it's more fight where you are, carry out attacks where you are. And that's something that they will continue to push regardless. You don't need necessarily physical infrastructure to do that. You just need an internet connection. And I think that that's part of this that is often lost, right, which is that you can morph as a terror group from especially ISIS, which is different than al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda never really controlled a territory. There wasn't like an al-Qaeda caliphate the way that ISIS had in Iraq and Syria. But you can morph from a group that controls territory to a group that doesn't, and you can morph from something that is all about running a defined area as compared to trying to spread violence around the world, and they've made that morphing. What I find fascinating is conventional wisdom, as we saw tragically on Election Day, is so often wrong and so often extreme, amazingly wrong. And it was so extraordinarily wrong about ISIS twice, right? So first, the conventional wisdom was ISIS controls territory. They don't want to fight or carry out terror attacks outside their borders. They're not al-Qaeda. And then they blew up a Russian airliner over Egypt. 
Then they have inspired attacks in Brussels and Paris and the in Orlando and sort of on and on and on. So the conventional wisdom of they don't want to attack outside Iraq, Syria, false. And then there's this also the conventional wisdom that goes beyond ISIS that you just hear repeated again and again and again that there's no military solution to fighting a terror group. And I think what we're seeing is that it's true when it comes to the ideas behind that terror group, but it is not true when it comes to actually defeating a terror group in a place. Israel functionally beat Hamas. You've had other, in Peru and Colombia, you've had terror groups, depending on your definition, but certainly insurgent groups defeated militarily. And I just find that fascinating. You could have conventional wisdom about terrorism, military response to terrorism. They're just woefully, woefully wrong. Well, I want to back up on that point. In 2014, when ISIS swept northern Iraq and really established the caliphate, the general view in Washington was this group is here to stay. When I wrote a piece in, 20, in February 2015 saying that ISIS was losing militarily on the ground, citing analysts who had been there and so on, the response that I got from other analysts and writers was, this is crazy. ISIS is incredibly powerful. They couldn't possibly lose to the ragtag, pathetic Iraqi army. And they were wrong right? The small number of people who were in touch with reality in Iraq were correct that they were losing territory. And to me, that reflects partially what you're describing, Yochi, the dynamic of people don't believe that there's a military solution to an insurgency, which there is historically. But it also reflects the fact that there is a strong tendency towards panic about terrorist groups. The U.S. has never had a problem of understating the threat from Islamist terrorism. We've had a problem of overstating it consistently since 9-11 over and over and over again. And this has led us to profoundly overstate the threat from ISIS's caliphate. Not that the response that came wasn't warranted. It was, and it was effective, and everyone dragged the Obama administration, but their strategy, the one they set up, has proven to be effective at degrading ISIS territorially. Maybe not other things, but certainly at that, which was the goal. But everyone was like, it's going to fail, it's a disaster, it's a mess. And when it comes to the narrow goal of defeating ISIS's caliphate, a limited military strategy seems to have been the right approach. So I think I will push back on the idea that we consistently overinflated the terror threat. I think in more recent times we definitely have. But I think what we're actually we're just talking about was that we underinflated, which is not a word, but, um, uh, you know, it we is, looked at— It is now, Jim. It is now. It I is made now. it a word. It's a thing. Um, we deflated. Underemphasized? Yeah. Downplayed. Let's go with downplayed. We downplayed the terror threat. So, but seriously though, the fact that like what Yilke was saying, analysts, myself included, I, I will admit, looked at ISIS's early kind of propaganda, its early messaging, and for good reason, you know, given what we had at the time in terms of intelligence and information, said, you know, they're not calling for attacks. I mean, they were calling for attacks in the West, but they weren't prioritizing it. So the call was, if you can't get here, then fine, do attacks in the West. But we really want you to come. I mean, they were using foreign fighters as essentially cannon fodder, as suicide bombers, because when you come as a foreign fighter from America or from France or wherever, you probably don't have the kind of jihadist actual military background and experience but to be able to Let me carry just jump out. in there, though, for one second, because when they were getting foreign fighters, I think they were getting them for another reason also, which was propaganda. You know, when they were doing the horrific beheadings of journalists, of other people, those were always done by someone who spoke English. You know, the British guy who was nicknamed in a kind of glib way, Jihadi John, the value he, that he brought was not that he was this military mastermind. It was, it's sort of scary to hear a masked guy with a British accent behead someone. Right, definitely. Scarier than if it was like an Arabic guy who didn't, speaking in Arabic or speaking in Farsi or speaking, pick the other language that sounds scary to American ears, then doing the beheading. There's something particularly scary about the fact that it was a British accent. That's yeah. the point, right? Like this was all designed to be scary, which it is. It's terrifying to think about somebody coming in and beheading someone in a Western city or even running a car into a number of people, right? Those things are scary to contemplate. But in objective terms, even though we understated the threat, let's just talk about the United States, right, to the U.S. homeland from ISIS, we understated it by not that much. It is still the case that fewer Americans are killed every year than they are by their own furniture from terrorism. It is still the case that 11,000 people are killed every year by gun homicides and terrorism is some minor fraction of that, even in years where there's a, like a significant terrorist attack since 9-11. Right. It's objectively, even if we understated ISIS's willingness or interest in attacking the United States, the amount of energy that terrorism is a threat to the U.S. homeland occupies in the American political conversation is radically out of proportion to the actual threat. It's just not even close. I think part of the problem, and yeah, I agree. I think part of the problem there is that analysts will tend to talk about the West 
collectively and the terror threat or the ISIS threat to the West. But you can't actually do that because you have to actually parse out the U.S. versus Europe. So just in terms of straight geography, it's a lot easier for ISIS fighters who are in Iraq and Syria to physically travel to France or to, you know, already be in France. But Belgium, France, London, it's a lot easier than to get across the ocean to the United States. So just in and of itself, the geography has always protected the United States in a lot of ways from kind of international conflicts. So there's that fact, and analysts tend to kind of group it together and just say, well, they don't want to attack the West, or they do, and they do. It's just harder to do it here. It's also a testament to the fact that we actually have improved in terms of the intelligence and security services in the United States. Since 9-11, we learned a lot of lessons. Um, The intelligence and security services are not perfect, but they have done a lot um, to actually kind of improve their ability to track this. But I was saying this the other day. We've seen these attacks on, I guess it was Bastille Day. The Nice attack was on Bastille Day. Um, so you see these— And, and the Nice attack, just to remind people, this was somebody plowing three right. people on a beachside promenade, which was really—the the, the scenes were just horrific right. and bodies kind of strewn everywhere. And then you had the Christmas Day market attack, the same kind of thing, somebody driving through um, and killing a bunch of, of people just walking around. And these are significant holidays. These are, you know, prominent days where people are out celebrating. And so— Ostensibly, if you're thinking, you know, I'm ISIS, I want to attack the United States, it would stand to reason that 4th of July would be like a really popular target, right? It'd be easy, right? There are Americans out in large groups celebrating. It's a patriotic kind of very, you know, celebration of the very thing that ISIS is essentially fighting back against. So if you're looking at it from an analytical perspective and trying to predict where a terrorist attack might occur, it would be really easy to look at 4th of July and see like, oh, I would expect someone to drive a van or something. But that didn't happen. And there could be many reasons why, obviously— But I think it also speaks to the fact that the terror threat just isn't the same kind of level. And it doesn't mean that people didn't want to, but it's such an easy kind of attack that could have happened, and it didn't. And I think that really speaks to the fact that that the terror threat is much, much smaller here to the U.S. homeland from the ISIS-inspired attacks than it is even in Europe. And then, of course, in, you know, Yeah, I mean, not not to be grim, but I, I always wonder, given how easy it is to get machine guns, assault rifles, M4s in the U.S., why there are fewer terror attacks. Right. When, you, when, you, when you think about the fact that you could walk into a gun show in Virginia, so we're talking about 20 minutes away from where we are here in D.C., and buy, basically with no government regulation whatsoever, an assault rifle at a gun show, I'm really kind of amazed that you don't have attacks every day or every couple of days. Right. And it's something we had talked about in the office, but when there was the shooting of the congressman where Steve Scalise, who is still hovering a little bit life and death, yeah. imagine if that attack had been carried out not by a crazed white guy who has vaguely Bernie Sanders-type leanings, but if he were Muslim, I mean, if that were somebody of Arab descent or Muslim descent, even if he didn't say he was doing it because of ISIS, because of al-Qaeda, think of how different the debate would be here. I mean, that t- attack, which was designed to terrorize, is not being called a terror attack. That man who did the shooting is being called a deranged individual. Right. And all of us, the three of us in this room and the people with whom we work, were paid because we like words. And we try to be as precise with those words as possible. And it is really striking that if you're and I'm just going to be generalizing here, but if you're a white guy and you shoot something up, a school, whatever, you're deranged. And if you are a Muslim person you shoot, you shoot up that school, you're a terrorist. Even if you're a white guy who goes into, say, a church in Charleston because you're a white supremacist and want to start a race war. Exactly. Right. Which is the Overt literal— <laughs> terrorism. Yeah, Dylan Roof was the, the man who did this. Right. He was a terrorist. That is— Under any the, definition. <laughs> right. The, the, te- the general definition, the working one, because terrorism is hard to define, is violence for a political purpose, right? You kill people because you want to accomplish some kind of political goal. It is very clear that someone who wants to start a race war— is a terrorist under that definition. It is inarguable, as Jen just said. That's sort of forgotten in mainstream discourse. Terrorism has come to mean horrible things done by Islamists. And that's, historically, that's not accurate in the United States. Terrorism has mostly been the province of white men. It's not accurate in a lot of places, right? I mean, uh, one thing I thought, yeah, that was interesting when you were in London for the London Bridge attack, Zach did some pretty great spot on the ground reporting. And we should just be clear that he he didn't go there for the London Bridge attack, like (laughs) knowing it was going to come or wanted to. Right, he was not involved in the plot in any way. I was there covering the election and happened to be near the terrorist attack. And a stroke of journalistic, horrible luck for the world 
good luck for our journalism. Yes. But I think when you were there, you commented to us that you had interviewed someone on the ground and it was a, a woman who had kind of misidentified and said, I thought it was a white guy, like in a van. Yep. And you were, I remember you saying it's really odd that you usually have like people kind of doing it the other way, right? Like profiling, racially profiling and getting it wrong and blaming someone who's not white. And, you know, I think I responded like, yeah, that makes sense because in Britain for the longest time, the IRA, the terrorist organization, the Irish Republican Army, were white people, right, in in vans who drive around doing, like, car bombings. So it actually kind of makes sense that if you're a British person, that terrorism still to this day means white people with bombs. And same thing if you go to Oklahoma. If you talk to a lot of people, especially older people in Oklahoma, terrorism to a lot of them still means white people because of the Oklahoma City bombing and the trauma that that, that really did to the state. So for the longest time, like you said, terrorism in, in the United States— up till basically 9-11, I mean, there were there were plots um, before there was the, the World Trade Center bombing in the 90s, but it was more right-wing terror, and actually still is. More Americans have been killed by right-wing, kind of far-right terrorists in the United States since 9-11 than they have by Muslim-inspired terrorists. But that has to do with the narrative, right? So part of it is on the media, but part of it is also propaganda that is pushed by ISIS and, and al-Qaeda themselves. So when you look at it, it's partially— political and media feeding into this, um, to the ISIS propaganda. So the more they hype it, that they're a big threat, the more we kind of buy into that and say that they're this big existential threat. I mean, you can see people, politicians, you know, analysts, maybe not the best ones, pundits, I should say, calling ISIS an existential threat to the United States. That is fundamentally ridiculous. Although, let me, let me actually push back a little bit there because you don't often hear existential threat. You do hear that from sort of extreme on the extreme right? You've heard it you, from senators. Yeah, but yeah. It's, but senators on the extreme right. Who, you don't often hear them say, Iran was often described as an existential threat. North Korea is described as an existential threat. I, I'm not saying they don't push up or exaggerate the terror threat, in part because there's sort of the military-industrial terror-industrial complex where it's easy politically to score points. It's easy politically to insult your opponent and say they're soft on terrorism, we're strong on it. But it's usually described, not that it's not described as a threat perhaps beyond what it actually is, but I think not as often described as existential. What I do think is interesting is something we have to kind of separate out is obviously the goal of these groups is to terrorize, of course. I mean, it's inherent in the name. But if a person feels terror, I don't think we should just automatically assume, hey, dumb person, you're being overly sensitive. You're sort of allowing your own fears to kind of guide your, your actions. There are things to be scared about. There are things to be scared about when it comes to an ideology that right now, even if historically this was not the case, right now, there is no parallel to it in the world. Like right now, we can point to accurate statistics about how many people are killed, and Jenny, you've written about this, by white supremacist groups, by Christian groups, by anti-government groups as compared to terror groups. But the difference, and I, th I think it is something occasionally it's hard for progressives to often talk through, is right now, in this particular historical moment, the ideology linking attacks in France, in Italy, in Germany, in Belgium, in Orlando, is not white Christian supremacy. It is not anti-government. It is Islamic extremism. And I think there's, there is the risk, just as there is of overstating it, there is also the risk of sort of ignoring or trying to downplay that. And I think both of those things could be worrisome and dangerous. Yeah, right, but I, I'm, I, I'm afraid I don't buy that. I can't remember a time in the United States where we've swung too far since 9-11 in terms of downplaying terrorism as a mainstream discourse, right? There might be elements of the left on the internet that go too far in downplaying terrorism, but those don't speak for the Democratic Party. And the Republican Party has never even come close to downplaying the threat from terrorism. They link it to all sorts of things. They say ISIS is trying to sneak across the Mexican border, so therefore we need to slash immigration rates and for some of them or otherwise you know, build a wall or something like that. Right. This was a big thing in the summer of 2015, if I remember correctly. And not only that, but fears of terrorism have been a major motivator of anti-Muslim hate crimes. There's no world in which the American policy response has been determined by a limited assessment, too limited assessment of the overall risk from terrorism. Right, right now, we've, we've used those restrictions for crackdowns on civil liberties. We've used it as a justification for the Iraq War, one of the greatest blunders in American foreign policy. The, the threat is so blown out of proportion that it seems to me that you can't do enough to emphasize how limited it is. Right. I think the question, and I agree with you, Zach, I think the question— though that Yochi raised, I think the point you made is actually really important. So the question is, if more people have been killed by right-wing terrorism than by Muslim terrorists since 9-11, 
but the Muslim terrorist ideology feels scarier. Why? And I think that's the important thing. Like, if the numbers don't actually bear this out, but my grandmother, who's 91 now, if she's terrified of seeing a woman in full face veil, even though women in full face veils are not typically the people who have carried out American you know, terrorist attacks on American soil, but if she's scared of that and she has this kind of perception of that and kind of linking that with terrorism and, and Islam, and she's scared of that, but she's not scared of Dylan Roof. She's not scared of a white guy coming in and shooting her. Why, right? Like, where is that kind of narrative coming from? Where is that fear coming from? And that goes back to the point I was trying to make, which is that this fear response plays back into what the terrorists are generally trying to do, is to get you to be terrified if you're on a street corner in San Antonio, Texas, if you're, you know, at the mall in Akron, Ohio, to make people feel unsafe in safe, regular places in their everyday life is the entire point of terrorism. And the fact that overblown policy responses, overheated rhetoric, not accurately giving the American people a clear picture of the real terrorism threat in terms of actual statistics, actual numbers, and using these as political kind of rhetoric talking points does a disservice to the American people and doesn't help us build resilience in the face of actual terrorist threats. On that last point, I agree completely. I thought that we love to tell a self-mythologizing narrative about Americans. We're tough. We're strong. We, we don't cower. We don't run. I was in Boston. These colors don't run. Right. I mean, I was in Boston immediately before and then again immediately after the Boston Marathon bombing. And Boston shut down. Right. They evacuated an entire city to catch one dumb, evil, misguided person who carried out a horrific attack for the families of the people who died. But by the scheme of terrorism, by the, the ratios of people who die, not obviously minimizing the human cost of the people who lost a loved one in the attack, right. four or five people is not 4,000 people, right? It's not 60 people. It's not 80 people. And we evacuated a city. We are, this is a hot take I've said on radio, on NPR, and gotten hammered, even by the kind NPR audience. So <laughs> I, I dread what will pour down on me for this. We are often a nation of cowards. And it, I don't like to use that word, except in this case, it's true. If we evacuate all of a major city to get one guy who killed four people, that's not the action of a strong, self-confident, macho, brawny country. That's the action of a country that gets scared, which I think, you know, Zach kind of gets back to a point you are making a little bit earlier. One, there's the question of should people be scared? One is the question of what do you do if you're scared? And I think what we're seeing again and again is politically, you remember Barack Obama? I do remember him. Yeah, (laughs) it feels like it was so many years ago. (laughs) Right. Those halcyon days of black and white photos of this aging thing 60 years ago. Ah, Camelot. (laughs) I mean, ah, six months ago. But you remember he gave a speech, I think it was a year before he left office, specifically describing the ISIS threat. And the whole point of his speech was to say to people, hey, they're not eight feet tall. They're not lurking in every street corner. They're not ready, hiding under the table of our little podcast. And he was hammered here. for that. And he was hammered for yeah. it. Yeah. But he was it's, right. I mean, Obama made a number of mistakes. They're still the JV messaging. team. I'm going to say it. They're right. still JV. That was a dumb, the JV yeah, team. That was which, dumb. And just to remind people of that, that was when he was asked early on about ISIS and sort of minimized the threat and say that, you know, they're the JV team as compared to like implicitly to Al-Qaeda, which was a dumb, dumb comment. Right. And then in 2011, after bin Laden was killed, the administration went around functionally telling everybody that Al-Qaeda was beaten, which is not true. And and their policy didn't reflect that. They were still using drones in Pakistan and Somalia to kill a lot of people. They were still investing tremendous amounts of money in counterterrorism efforts. The Obama administration's public rhetoric didn't seem to match what their actions were. So when I say we overreact as a matter of policy, I think that's right. The Obama administration tried to correct on the rhetoric. Right. But mostly, like, maintained Bush-era policies when it came to terrorism. Right. And I actually want to talk about al-Qaeda a little bit here, if we could. But uh, really quickly, I just want to clarify one thing that I know Yelke wasn't actually saying, um, but I just want to make sure. So when Boston shut down, it was the authorities who made that decision. So we're not saying that the Boston people are cowards and that they didn't have resilience. I know that's absolutely not what you were saying, but the Boston people actually showed incredible resilience in getting back on the street and holding the marathon again the next year. But we're talking in terms of policy responses, I think, just to, to clarify what I know you were saying and what you weren't saying. This is always um, is my gratitude to my brilliant colleagues from <laughs> saving me for quite as much Boston hate. Right. Uh, my wife being from Boston, right. so the hate would have come from every yeah, direction. I, I don't, don't want to see otherwise. you break up your marriage on, on the podcast. But yes. Thank you. Oh, sorry, Jen, before we get to Al-Qaeda, I, I want to note also that we shouldn't overstate the ISIS threat to Europe. So in July 2015, 
360 people died in roadside accidents in France alone. In 2011, the number of deaths from car accidents in Europe continent-wide was 30,000. These are numbers I just looked up fairly quickly, and I assume would bear would be borne out in recent data. The degree of the threat from terrorism and number of deaths from terrorism monthly or annually doesn't even come close to approximately. Yeah, but I, I I find that I mean I, those numbers I know are, are accurate. I, I find that general line of thinking not persuasive. Cars are not part of an ideology of cars elsewhere who are trying intentionally to kill you. Text people who are texting because they're you moron. haven't been to Texas lately. We're trying to kill you with our cars. <laughs> you know, people who are texting on their phones and crashing into the cars because they're idiots are not part of an ideology that is spread to other countries of other people texting intentionally to kill people. I think that obviously you can find statistics of a death toll from cancer that is a thousand times from of terrorism. Pick whatever factor you want to pick. That's not apples to apples. It, it really isn't. I mean, apples to apples would be if there were a mafia group that was intentionally trying to kill as part of a mafia war, which, you know, existed, let's say, in Italy in the, in the 80s and 90s. And those that mafia war was leading to, like, hundreds upon hundreds of policemen being killed. If you were to say, like, that is worse than Islamist terrorism, sure, because that's, like, more of an apples to apples. Or but right-wing I, terrorism. Right, or right-wing States. terrorism. But, but I mean, even pe- people watch, like, Narcos on Netflix, which was amazing, about <laughs> Pablo Escobar's war in Colombia. He killed, at his direct order, hundreds upon hundreds of police officers, judges. So if you want to say, like, he is worse than Islamist terrorists of the time or since. I would agree with you in terms of death toll. But there's a risk to being a little bit, I think, understating a terror threat and understating terrorism. If you say they've killed 300 people, car accidents have killed 500 people, it's just not It's not the same. No, but even then, I don't understand what the meaningful difference is. It is true that there is an ideology that is motivating this killing as opposed to random accidents. But if random accidents are killing more people, then that seems like a greater threat. And it seems like we should spend more effort adjusting our reality to accommodate the fact that this is a more serious threat that's hurting more people. But the amount of resources spent on counterterrorism versus roadside safety is tremendously disproportionate right. to the actual threats, right? It's and, and the amount of time and effort and media attention and fear that's ginned up about this is not corresponding to the actual scale of the problem. Like, to me, it doesn't matter what the motivation is. The question is the scale of the absolute threat and how much and what we can do to stop it. Right. And again, that goes to messaging. That goes to the entire point of terrorism. I think you guys are both right. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I have to work with you after this podcast <laughs> is there's over. A, there's, a, there's a but coming. Um, no, I, I think you guys are, are both right in the sense that, yes, the threat from terrorism is, statistically speaking, way, way smaller. And yes, it feels way, way bigger. Again, it goes to that point of why. And that's the entire point of terrorism. And I think— the way we can deal with this in a, in a more concrete, positive way is to do things like this, talk clearly and rationally about the nature of the threat and how to fight back against the terrorizing piece of it. You can fight back against, in a law enforcement sense, in an intelligence sense, um, and trying to prevent attacks and, and deal with it. But you can also address this through building resilience in the population and trying to tell people, just go about your daily lives. We used to actually say that, like, don't let the terrorists win. I mean, even after 9-11, I think it was it was Ford or Jeep that had, like, a keep rolling or rolling on or I mean, whatever. It was also, it was, it was a George W. Bush comment for which he was hammered at the time, and I thought unfairly. When he was asked, what should you do in response? He said, go, go to Disney World and go shopping. Right. And he was hammered. Yeah, but that was, he was good. But he was right. Right. Like, mm-hmm. live your life. And if your life is Disney World, go. And if your right. life is shopping, as it is for many Americans— Go. And I think the problem is that you don't see any kind of understanding that that is something that's an important piece of counterterrorism from the Trump administration, right? It's all about hyping the threat and being afraid of your neighbor and your Muslim neighbor. And we need to surveil mosques and we need to do this and that. And there's this, we need to ban all Muslims from coming in. That is not go to Disneyland and go to the mall. Like that is be afraid, be very, very afraid you are a target anywhere you go. And that's literally the exact same narrative that ISIS is pushing. And it's problematic because it it feeds into that and helps build them up bigger than they may actually be in terms of reach. And there's one point in that that, I, that I'd like to just drill in quickly as, as a last part of this conversation of this segment, which is something that both of you have mentioned in different ways, the West, right? The West as a concept and disaggregating it both, frankly, as you were saying, Jen, geographically, like Europe is geographically easier to hit than the United States. European Western values, Zach, you've written about this a lot, are far more progressive in many ways, like, you know, a better standard of living than what we have here. But when you have Donald Trump go to Poland and give this kind of extraordinarily class of civilization-esque model of the West has to stand against these other groups, the West, the West, the West, you just allied right over that the West is not one thing. Yeah. 
there's a sense, right, of, of what the West might mean that is different for different people, right? And it matters when we talk about terrorism because there's an exclusivist vision of the West wherein it means a specific kind of people who have a specific set of shared heritage defined by essentially blood ties. That was the not-so-subtle message of Trump's Poland speech. It's what you hear from the European far right and what you hear from White the Christians alt-right in the United States. is what we're talking States. about. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> people, and, and people of European descent. And that vision of the West it presents the United States as being in a civilizational struggle. Right. A civilizational struggle against people who look different and believe different things. And if that's how you see the West, then it makes sense to start banning Muslims, right? And that's why I, I was disturbed by a conservative reaction to defend Trump's Poland speech, because a lot of even mainstream conservatives who criticized Trump thought that that was an acceptable way to frame the problem. There's another vision of the West, though, which sees it as being defined by a set of ideas and concepts and a commitment to openness, tolerance, pluralism, liberalism, liberalism in the broad sense, not the American sense, you know, that means individual rights and political democracy. That is a, a sense of the West that's inclusivist, right? It means that other countries can share what we define as being quote unquote Western values. They can come on, they can come to from their own heritage and they can come to and accept and be part of what we might term the West conceived of more broadly. And that vision is the one that Islamists don't want to sell because it presents the West as being essentially capable of tolerating Islam and there being no war between Islam and the West writ large. That vision of the West is very compelling and what attracts people and causes them to move to the United States in the first place and other Western countries and is the one that you know, really does seem to diffuse threats from terrorism, as you can see from successful integration of the Muslim immigrant community in the United States. The current administration is actively hostile to this idea, which has been the dominant one among American presidents for the past 60-odd years. But it's also un-American. Muslim immigrants, I mean, America is a country that was built by immigrants on top of a place where people already lived, but that's a whole nother episode. But I mean, Muslims have been part of the fabric of the United States since its founding. I mean, going back to the earliest, earliest days, but also Muslims fought in the North in the Civil War. Muslims fought on both sides, but Muslims fought and died for the North in the U.S. in the American Civil War. They've fought and died in every war that we've had. There are mosques that have been standing since the earliest days of this country. A frieze of Muhammad is on the U.S. Supreme Court as one of the respected kind of symbols of lawgivers, along with Moses and, and other historical lawgivers. But the idea of Muslims in the West as this like kind of new thing is in and of itself a completely false narrative. Muslims are part of the West. Muslims are the West in as much as any other group of people are part of the West. And I think that is actually a great way to transition to the next part of our show, which is Elsewhere, the second segment that we do every week. This is designed to find a story in the world that really matters, that's really big, that occasionally is undercovered because there's the wave of news, cough Trump, cough ISIS, big things, big things, but not always the things that are the only thing happening. And Elsewhere, this week, we're going to go to Turkey. The sound you just heard was of mass protests inside Turkey. Tens and tens of thousands of Turkish citizens protesting against their president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is, among other things, an Islamist, among other things, somebody who's increasingly authoritarian, among other things, someone who's arrested tens of thousands of his own people. In some cases, depending on the estimate, up to 100,000. Journalists have disappeared, which may sound a lot like Russia. Political opponents have disappeared, again, might sound like Russia. Cronies of his now run the intelligence services, run the army. But what is, what's interesting and where I want to kick this off is this is not a person that the U.S. criticizes. This is not a person that the U.S. sidelines. This is a person that the U.S. loves. And I want to put on my imaginary glasses because I'm old and read a specific quote. So Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Mr. Charisma, went to Turkey, happened to be in Turkey during these protests, took his charisma with him, decided to say the following. Again, while there are mass protests pro-democracy against authoritarianism, big things the U.S. typically likes in the case of democracy, doesn't like in the case of authoritarianism, and he said this. Nearly a year ago, the Turkish people, brave men and women, stood up against coup plotters and defended their democracy. And then this was the Washington Post's very wonderfully understated sentence. He did not mention the demonstration, nor the government crackdown, which is like saying, hey, Mrs. Lincoln, 
the play was great, wasn't it? And just leaving off the other parts of it. And I wonder if we could just kick off there. One, sort of what's happening? Because this is a country that people may think of as, an, if they think of it as all, as a place they go to visit on vacation. It's a NATO member. But they're probably not thinking of it as a place where you've got a Russia-esque crackdown. And two, why would a Secretary of State be there literally as there are mass protests and decide, hey, I'm not going to mention any of those? So Turkey is an interesting case because it's it might be the wealthiest country ever to transition from democracy to what seems a lot like authoritarianism now. And Turkey had a long history of military coups, even when it was a functioning democracy. And so when Erdogan came in some years ago, he attempted to limit the powers of the military and its influence over politics, which seemed like a reasonable point to try to really democratize the country and prevent the military from intervening and, you know, toppling elected governments. But over the course of time, it seemed to be less about restoring democracy and more about cementing this one man's political control. After he was prime minister for a long time, which until this year in Turkey was the top position, and then when he was term limited out, he ran for president and then pushed a referendum that would give the president the prime minister's powers plus a whole lot more control over the budget and stuff like that. And he lost the first time he proposed it. And then in 2016, some elements of the military concerned about his crackdown on protesters and jailing of dissidents tried to launch another coup, but Erdogan had very successfully limited the, the military's ability to do that and co-opted parts of the military and even brought out the people on his side. Um, so the coup failed. And then Erdogan went really nuts and started imprisoning, I think it was 50,000 at one count that I saw and in, in the past year and firing people, huge numbers of people who had nothing to do with anyone who was alleged of being part of the coup, right? Under no justification. People from ethnic minority groups, for example. And also teachers, hospital workers, doctors, nurses. I mean, it, right. was, it was widespread. It was widespread. Right. And then he proposed the referendum again, and in 2017, April, he won. And the now President Erdogan has tremendous amounts of power over the Turkish state. This is a story that no one thought you would be able to tell in a democracy like this even 15 years ago. This was just unprecedented. And it really illustrates the degree to which institutions are more vulnerable than we think they might be. Yeah, I think it's really important um, to kind of talk about the, the military kind of part of that and in the coup, and I'm, I'm super glad you raised that. Um, I think the military intervened four times. That's right. Um, yeah, that's right. And, and toppled two, I think, were forceful to, they just kind of forced the prime minister to step down. And there's a reason why the, the military kind of did this. So James Palmer, um, who is now, I think, at FP, did a really great piece for us at Freelance a while back kind of explaining the entire concept of the Turkish deep state and, and the history of the military coups. And essentially, you know, he was explaining that the military has traditionally seen itself as the guarantor of the republic that that Ataturk built, right? Um, that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who's the founder of modern Turkey, built this kind of secularist, modern, pro-Western, kind of leaning Turkish state out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. And the military, he was an Ottoman general, and he helped lead resistance against the Greek forces and other forces who were trying to break up Turkey, break up the Ottoman Empire among themselves, and is the father of the modern Turkish state, right? But it was a secularist, overt, modern, pro-Western Turkish state. And the military has always seen itself as the guarantor of that. And there's this really interesting concept that helps, I think, really explain the way modern Turkey operates. So it goes back to the, the Treaty of Sevra. As so many things do. <laughs> right, right. So I guess 1920, again, it was when, you know, the, the victorious forces in World War I were essentially carving up the Ottoman Empire among themselves. And it only lasted for a year because Ataturk and other Ottoman generals kind of fought back and, and broke it up. And they ended up, you know, founding the modern Turkish state. But it kind of produced what, what scholars call like the Sevra syndrome, which is the idea that hostile external forces are consistently trying to infiltrate and break up Turkey. And it's, you know, a lot of scholars point to this as this paranoid, conspiracy-minded theme that undergirds a lot of how the Turkish state operates. It's this kind of, you know, paranoid, they're internal and external forces that are trying to break us up. And so it helps explain a lot, even Erdogan's own actions in terms of purges. And I think it's really fascinating that something from 1920 
But I mean, in this country, we see things from our past that tend to still kind of be really like strong, important narratives that drive how we see, you know, our place in the world stage, how we see ourselves. And so I think it's really interesting to look at that. And then there's also, we can talk about Fethullah Gulen and, and how, so he's this Muslim cleric who's super moderate, has a foothold in the Sufi mystical tradition of Islam, but he and Erdogan used to be— Let, Let's actually unpack this even further because— he lives in Pennsylvania. Yes, and, and, he has and there, since and the 90s, 99. And there, there's an American component to this that that is not just the policy side. You know, Turkey houses a very important airbase, Insulik airbase. But setting aside, it's a NATO member. Setting aside all of that, we've seen in Washington, we've seen a few blocks from here, what happens when a thug, which is basically what Erdogan is, brings thuggish behavior to Washington. So I Putin think- on the Bosporus. Yeah, exactly. Um, the world's worst romantic book. Um, <laughs> about a year and a half ago, I happened to be there for the first time this happened. Erdogan was supposed to speak at the Brookings. This was Jen's former employer, so I will intentionally say the Brookings Institute. Jen? Institution. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but Erdogan was supposed to speak, and there were protesters outside. And for people who, who may know Washington a little bit well, our office is in DuPont Circle, Brookings is about three blocks away, four blocks away. It's it's very close by. This is all kind of very close to where we're sitting right now. There are protesters in America, protesters on the streets right in front of the Brookings building. Erdogan security personnel went out and basically beat the crap out of a bunch of them. I was there. I mean, I was live streaming this to the ground Twitter and then posting videos. It was bonkers. They were tackling women. They were punching women in the head. There were DC police trying to separate the two. And it was very close at one point to a Turkish guy slugging a DC police guy. And they all had their hands on their guns. This then happened again more recently mm-hmm. here again in Washington, where there were now basically arrest warrants out for the bodyguards of a major foreign leader. A I major think, treaty ally. A treaty right. ally. To, to emphasize right. how bonkers a, a, a this NATO, is. Not just a, a buddy like, yeah. who has Indrilic Air Base, where we literally fly bombing missions in the Middle East. Right. So it's just interesting to me that occasionally you've got thuggishness, but it's far away. Right. So Putin's a thug in Russia. Then you've got thuggishness in Turkey, and it's here in DuPont Circle. Right. I That's mean, Europeans would sympathize with that when it comes to Putin, right? You know, he comes, he kills Russian diplomats in the UK. Right. And he feels, or sorry, Russian people that he doesn't like. With poison sushi, which in, in fairness is kind of badass, but but yes. If you want to be clear about how authoritarian Erdogan is, he literally used Adolf Hitler's reforms in terms of gathering power into a unitary position as a positive example of when this has worked well. Like he literally stated that he essentially admires Adolf Hitler's reform. It's always charming when you're using Hitler as a role model. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And this is someone who Trump called to congratulate after Erdogan held the referendum that he was comparing to Hitler's consolidation of power. Donald Trump called and said, congratulations on your victorious win that election monitors said was questionable. And also, it's important to note, to get back to the protests that are happening, that the referendum vote was a really tight margin. It was like 51.3%, I think, that that he won. And Erdogan also lost the biggest cities. He lost Istanbul, he lost Ankara, and he lost another place that's also a, a secularist stronghold, so it's less important, another big city. But, I mean, that actually shows that there are a lot of divides in, in Turkey today. I think it's important to clarify what those are. So, I mean, you have the secularists versus the Islamists, so Erdogan's party, the AKP, the AK party, um, the Justice and Development Party, AKP is the, the Turkish acronym. It's a vaguely Islamist party, although Erdogan is much more of a pragmatist and he's actually pissing off the kind of more conservative Islamists because of a lot of his policies. But you have other schisms. So you even have liberals and conservatives. You have a whole host of people. You have the Turkish nationalists. You have the Kurdish nas- nationalists. And there are okay, all so these that's, different that's factions. Like, that's like a lot of different things, right? right? But the, the question that I have that I don't have a good answer for, maybe one of you two has more concrete feelings about it, is how likely are these mass protests to serve as any kind of foundation for real resistance to Erdogan's government going forward? Because the thing that keeps me up when, when thinking about Turkey is that this was a, a fairly established democracy with people who liked living in a democracy, who enjoyed the fact that they could vote and, and had a degree of individual rights and the ability to criticize their government. Now you have the government nationalizing critical news agencies and hitting protesters with water cannons and tear gas. Uh, so like, do all of these people rise up, right? Does this, do these urban centers serve as fonts of resistance or does it just not matter? I mean, I, I think you see over and over in Turkey that this isn't the first time this has happened, right? We talked about these four coups. It's a different group of people who are doing these purges and who are, who are taking over power. But this is actually a fairly 
consistent thing in that there will be a group that starts to get more powerful and then someone will kind of come in, usually the military, and push back and try to do this. So it's not the first time we've seen, I mean, even in the 2000s, we've seen several purges, like the Organicon hearings, um, accusations, and, and prosecutions. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it could be checked eventually. However, Erdogan has been a really, really successful in consolidating his power over the institutions themselves. Right. So the I'm, judiciary. I'm, I'm not sure who the pushback would come from. I mean, the deep state, which is now a phrase that Donald Trump has adopted to say that the leaks coming out about his various corruptions but, and lies. But originated in Turkey. It originated in Turkey, where it was a real thing. There was a real thing called the deep state that, that existed as a check. Erdogan has been brilliant in how he has eviscerated it pre-coup and post-coup. Pre-coup, he already began firing generals who were possible threats. He already began putting in more Islamist generals and officers. Post-coup, he is, at one point, he released footage of generals, in some cases who were not tied to this, in their undershirts, being like led through hallways kind of by other mm-hmm. uniformed Turkish police, which were designed to humiliate the generals. So, Jen, I, I agree that there were in the past checks, but I guess where I might slightly disagree is I think the, those checks are for the most part gone. And it's very scary. I mean, th- this is a man who is so thin-skinned that he put in jail someone of his own, his, a, a Turkish citizen, who had posted, and it's very funny, people who have not seen this immediately Google it, comparisons of Gollum from Lord of the Rings and Erdogan, sort of photo by photo. Turns out he actually bears a strong resemblance. Nasty to, protesters. Wow, that was bad. <laughs> the hurts it. Bad, the hurts it. Wow. Terrible, the, the terrible for- impression. But he is former, not terrible. But, he, but he's thrown that person in jail. The former Miss Turkey also for like reading a poem. But what's crazy, Erdogan himself went to jail for reading a poem that the state didn't like. So that's the thing. Like, who is the deep state is Wait, sorry, when, when did he go to jail? Uh, before he was prime minister, so that's when he was— Yeah, this was when he was mayor of Istanbul. He, he read a, a right. poem that was An about— Islamist. You know, people from the mosques will, will come into the come to the streets. It's a pretty, right. pretty crappy poem, to say. Purely <laughs> <laughs> is a poem. It kind of sucks. <laughs> wow, with a literary criticism from Yochi. The, the, the thing is, who is the deep state in Turkey has been consistently redefined over and over again. So when Fethullah Gulen, the Islamist cleric, and Erdogan were allies, Fethullah Gulen actually supported— Erdogan's purge of the previous version of the deep state. And now Erdogan says that Gulen is the deep state. So it's consistently redefined, like, who is good and who is bad. And it's it's really interesting the way that I think that Erdogan uses Fethullah Gulen. It's James Palmer in his piece for Vox said that it was similar to the way that Stalin used Leon Trotsky in his rhetoric. So basically, like, he's the traitor who you can blame anything and everything that goes wrong within the state on this one person. It becomes like this kind of scapegoat that may have some basis in reality, but is piled on all this kind of additional conspiracy theory stuff on top of it. I, I do want to give, by the way, a shout out. Part of the reason why this is something we, we're all kind of passionate about, both in terms of Zach's wonderful impression and also uh, Jen's brilliance in describing this. We did a really good video, which if you have not watched, if you're listening to this, it's both on our YouTube channel, it's on Facebook, with our colleagues, uh, Sam Ellis and Johnny Harris, that is all about the rise of Erdogan. And one of the things that we focus on in the video is he is very self-consciously and very deliberately trying to be the anti-Ataturk. So Ataturk was the founder of the modern state, as Jen was talking about earlier. He basically banned religion. We may have gone a little bit too far in banning religion in a country that has a religious portion of it. He built the modern Turkish state. He built the army in as a, as a secular defense. Erdogan sees himself as kind of a historical figure on par with Ataturk. He just wants to take Turkey in the total opposite direction. And this is something we had a lot of fun exploring in the video at some length because seeing the imagery of Ataturk, who banned the Fez, he sort of shut down mosques. So seeing the, that as imagery, and then you see the imagery of Erdogan, at one point, a, a kind of signal moment to the rise of the protest against Erdogan were mass protests in a park in downtown Istanbul against the development that would have demolished that park to build a shopping mall by one of Erdogan's cronies. You had mass protests in the park. Erdogan sent in takes with water cannons. And that sort of prompted in some ways this this massive, we're still seeing it still exists, this massive popular discontent with Erdogan. But I recommend the video because seeing that is in some ways much more powerful than than hearing it, despite the brilliance of Zach's impression of, of Gollum. I appreciate the compliments, but there's also a serious point here. When you talk to experts on democracy and the sort of rise and fall of dictatorships. The consistent through line is that the most important factor is the role the citizenry plays. You can't just count on institutions to protect people and defend democratic norms and 
to even push a country towards democracy, you need some kind of prompting from the citizenry. So Ben Wittes actually had a really great quote on this recently. It was, the only way to tyrant-proof a democracy is not to elect a tyrant. I mean, it's it's not just about elections either. It's about having people get out in the streets and register discontent and show that they are not willing to countenance this, that they will do whatever they can to stop a slide towards dictatorship or to push the country into democracy. Including staging a coup. Well, and I think the the question there in some ways, and Zach, I think it's a, it's a great point. I think the question there is, once you have citizens who are willing to do that, who are willing to take to the streets, what happens to those citizens? Right. right. So I think half the question about defending democracy is, do you have people willing to do it? I mean, obviously in this country, we've seen whether it was some of the women's protests and the protests against the Muslim ban, which have been very moving, I think, in part because those protests have not just been Muslims, those have been Christians, those have been Jewish leaders wearing kippot. I mean, you've seen mass protests here. Thankfully, there hasn't been mass arrests. We haven't seen tanks and water cannons. In Turkey, what's scary is you are seeing part of that. You are seeing mass protests, but then you're seeing what, an, what a repressive government is willing to do, which is kill its enemies, mass arrests, and send in the tanks. And I think it's kind of the interplay between the two that yeah. is sort of scary and sort of, I think, the question going forward in Turkey, do you have the big popular uprising that continues? And if so, do you have the tanks go in and try to crush it? It's escalation and counter-escalation, right? And there are non-violent ways to counter-escalate on behalf of the protesters. You can stage strikes. You can encircle the presidential palace. Not, you know, and like throw stones at it or anything, but just stand out there and really disrupt the president's life. It's a really ugly presidential palace, by the way. Well, all the better to block it with a human chain. (laughs) The white palace. (laughs) And the point is that this dynamic of escalation and counter-escalation in Syria produced a civil war. We're very, very far from anything like that in Turkey. And there are ways with a strong civil society, and Turkey is a much stronger one than, than Syria did, uh, that you can have a nonviolent uprising that successfully pressures the government, not just as like, thank you, sir, we're happily protesting with flowers, but actually uses tactics of shutting down different parts of the operation of the country to pressure the government to changing. And I just don't know if Turkey's movement is capable of coalescing around a set of tactics and goals that can successfully protest. I think that's the perfect point is coalescing. And that's because the opposition isn't one group of people. So when I was describing all the different axes of conflict and the different groups that are all opposed to each other, it's not just one group versus the other. It's all kinds of groups. So the AKP, Erdogan's party, is an Islamist party, but there are more hardline conservative Islamist groups who were actually part of the protest against his authoritarianism, who are out in the streets, but who might not necessarily get along more broadly with the secularists who may also be protesting against this Islamist party and Erdogan's authoritarianism. So And then you have the the Kurdish nationalists, you have the Turkish nationalists, you have all these different groups, a lot of whom are completely opposed to each other, but who are suddenly realizing that Erdogan's authoritarianism is bad for them and the country for different reasons. So if they could all get together and form like a united bloc of opposition, that could have some power. How likely that is, is an entirely different question. And I think this is a good place for us to end because this is a story— Turkey as a country, Erdogan as a leader, which are fascinating, which we've explored already on the site in articles and videos. And I really do recommend the video that's on the rise of Erdogan. Come back because this is something that we will talk about again. Before we close, we want to thank our producer, Peter Leonard. If you like what you've heard, and we hope you do, subscribe. Tell everyone you know and love to subscribe. Rate it and review us because that's how other people will come to find us. Apple Podcasts. Hit us up on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us on Google, on Stitcher. But rate and review on Apple Podcasts, which, which is really vital. Hit us up on Twitter individually if you want to send us emails individually, but please not hate-filled ones. We look forward to making this much more of a community, and we will see you next week. Goodbye, worldly hobbitses. Sorry. We love you.